All right, we're in a series on making disciples, uh, and we've addressed the uh, structure and content as it relates to the two models that I gave you the handouts on that was the structure of um, the building and the structure of a tree, because there's both the structure of discipleship and there's the development of discipleship. We began with the foundation, the subflooring, if you will, which is grace, as the unmerited favor of God, which secures us uh, as objects of his love. Uh, we then looked at the notion of faith, hope, and love. Because of God's love, he has uh, made promises to us that become our hope. We respond to that hope by faith or trust in the one who promised, not in the promises, in the one who promised. Um, we then looked at the flooring, lordship, uh, which is based on God's authority over us as creator and as redeemer. And uh, that would then be extended to Christ. All authority is given to me, he said, in heaven and on earth. And so in that context, lordship, our confession of faith, is that we should walk after him and follow him. Last time that uh, I was with you, we looked at the struggle of lordship, the struggle of faith, because we are constantly battling the flesh the world, and the devil, as those temptations make us commonly fail to miss, to, to reach the mark. So we miss the mark. That's the essence of sin, missing the mark. We talked about the difference between intentionally missing the mark, that kind of sin there is no forgiveness for, but then when repentance takes place and we're striving to hit the mark and we miss it, there is forgiveness and the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us in that framework. So today we're going to look at the will of God as expressed in the commandments. To do that, we have to understand what the will of God is. It's really become popular in Christianity to assume that God has an individual, particular will for each person that he kind of plays hide-and-go-seek with, and you have to kind of work your way through to find it. And most people do that by following their emotions and their circumstances, which is the essence of paganism. Pagans looked at the circumstances, they looked at their feelings, and interpreted that as the will of the gods. The scriptures are the light to our feet and a lamp to our path that help us to deal with circumstances and to deal with our feelings and things, not to be led by them. So many Christians are led by circumstances and feelings and call that being led by the Spirit. The truth is God has a will for us. He has an eternal purpose that he's working out. As he works that out, he doesn't actually need our help, though there are times when he will use people in the process of that purpose. But most of us are not going to be operating in that purpose like Moses and the prophets and the apostles. And, the, and if you look at their lives, they weren't seeking to do that. They were told by God, this is what I want you to do. It was a manifestation. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't an emotion. It wasn't a circumstance. So the, the actual will of God are the commandments. The commandments are the general commanded will of God that he has for all of his children. And that notion of commandments is in some sense being ignored by believers or obscured by this doctrine of individual will. I don't need to look at the scriptures to see God's will. I can look at circumstances and then pull a verse out of context for it. 
So the reality is that the general directed will of God is for all of his people and is found in the commandments. The rest of life, where the commandments don't specifically speak. Our stewardship, where our decisions are to be consistent with those commandments. And they involve wisdom, which God gives us when we ask him for it in prayer. So that we can apply the truth, as found in the scriptures, into emerging new circumstances that we find ourselves in. So today I want to look at the commandments. Uh, There are 613 Old Testament commandments. There are 115 or more new commandments in the in the New Testament, uh, and if and if I do all of them, uh, we'll be here a very long time, right? So I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is take the three major commandments, the uh, gyroscope, if you will, uh, that give us the direction of God in our lives, and we'll look more at some of the details of those next time. But I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. In the Gospel of Mark, this is found in several of the Gospels. Uh, In the Gospel of Mark, uh, it is given in a particular way that I I want to uh, point out. It says in uh, chapter 12, verse 28, one of the scribes, now a scribe is someone who is literate in the scriptures and in the Torah and in the understanding of uh, the the faith at the time of Jesus. Uh, And he heard them arguing, uh, and he recognized that he had answered them well. In other words, he realizes that Jesus seriously knows the Torah. He seriously understands the commandments of God. Um, Jesus had always been impressive to the scribes. You remember the priests and the scribes in the temple when he was 12, he was answering and they were amazed at his knowledge at that point. He's now in the fullness of his ministry and he is talking and this scribe hears him and he says to them, having recognized that he had answered them well, he says, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now I think what he's doing, Jesus probably has a Galilean accent. And what he's going is, the Galileans don't know this as well as us Judeans. And so I'm going to test him a little bit. So what's the greatest commandment? And we're going to see that Jesus is not only familiar with the scriptures, he's familiar with the Jewish understanding of the scriptures because he's going to quote one of the rabbis who preceded him. So Jesus says, The foremost is the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now the scribe gets this because those are the words of Hillel, and that rabbi had summed up the Torah in those two things. So Jesus not only knows the biblical text, which he has been doing in this earlier part, where he talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that they're not dead, they're alive. He's got the details of the Torah. But he understands the oral understanding and traditions of that as well. So the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, 
you have truly stated, He is one as there is no one beside Him. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Don't get entangled in the ritual aspects. The rituals are to bring experience into it, but they're not the substance. The substance are these great commandments. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one asked him any questions. I dare say, if you've got one of the major scholars come up and question Jesus, and Jesus, he says, you, you've done right, what about this? And he says, you've done right. And he goes, yeah, you're right. And Jesus says, you're close to the kingdom of God. You're going to ask a question? I don't think so. So we're, we're now tied to what is the uh, greatest commandment. It is to love God and to love uh, our neighbor. Now, Jesus is going to add to these two greatest commandments. And we see that in John chapter 13. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, at verse 34, Jesus is speaking to his disciples the night before, well, the night that he will be betrayed. He is about to leave them. He is giving them quite a discourse, and John records most of it in his Gospel. And in verse uh, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So, we get in these two passages, the three great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor, and love your fellow believer. Now, it's interesting that if you look at the passages on loving your neighbor, it, ex- it includes both your fellow Jew and the stranger. Jesus has now, in some sense, separated that. And we'll see the distinction is about the level of love that is required to be given in each case. So, I want you to see that the loving your neighbor as yourself is given the priority of emphasis in the writings of the scripture. You would think it would be love God. He said it's the greatest. The second is like it. But the idea is if you're doing the second, the first is in place. If you don't love God, you're not going to love your neighbor, right? But it's more than that. So I want us to look at Galatians chapter 5. Doing a little bit of a Bible drill this morning. Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, one statement, if you will. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul is going to say this in several of his texts, that the law is fulfilled if, in, in this, and what he's going to tend to do is the love your neighbor, and he's going to talk about the commandments related to that. Um, that becomes particularly important if we understand it as the apostles understood it. So I want to give you one more verse really quick to look at. And that is 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. After this, we'll look at some passages rather than just individual verses. In 1 John 4, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 20, John says, If someone says, I love God... 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You following that? So that's why the emphasis in the New Testament is on the second commandment. The assumption is we're talking to believers. They ought to love God. Well, if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. And you'll love one another. That's John's John's argument here. That's why he uses the word brother in that context. So now I want to look at these texts a little more in detail, these commandments, so that you get an understanding of love and the level of love that we are to give in each of these categories. So we begin with the... We begin with the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We we read this earlier in our liturgy. I just want to remind you of it uh, really quickly. Uh, It says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, in the New Testament, there are four things mentioned. In the Older Testament, only three are mentioned. And that is because the Hebrew and the Greek have a different sense of what the word heart means. In the Hebrew context, the heart is the mind. In the Greek concept, the heart is the emotions. And so, that's why in the Greek, they have to say, and your mind, and your heart, they, and your strength, they, they tie it in, so there's four categories there. Now, this notion of, you shall love the Lord your God, we've already talked about what love is. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is taking what you have, and at your expense, benefiting another person. So, this is why it's possible to love your enemy, because if he's hungry, you can feed him, If he's thirsty, you can give him a drink. And it doesn't mean you have to feel good about him. It means you have to meet his need at your expense. That's love. Love is one-sided giving to another based on their need and your ability to meet that need. Therefore, to love God is to give something to God. So, this word... We are to give to the Lord for His benefit. What is His benefit? What does God need? He has no need of anything, but what we can do in His creation is glorify Him, magnify Him, and through the obedience of our life before men we and the angels, we can uh, obey Him in a way that manifests who He is and what He's like. In other words, we begin to declare show ourselves being in the image of God and in the image of His Son. So, the word there is that we are to uh, worship the Lord or give to the Lord with all of our heart, that lead, that, that inner person. The heart or mind is the inner person that we give to God. It's our consciousness with all of its capacities. And the Greek texts, as I said, include the, the heart, the mind, and the emotions together because it is that what Paul calls the inner man in, in the context of uh, all of your thoughts and all of your directions and all of your motives and all of those things that we would generally classify under psychology. 
The other thing that he says is that we are to love the Lord our God uh, with all of our life. Now, the word life there is nefesh. It's from the root nefesh. It means the whole person. Not just supposed to give God my mind. I'm supposed to give Him all of me. This is why Paul, in Romans 12, is going to say, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And in 1 Corinthians, he will say, Glorify God in your body, which is His. He didn't just redeem your inner person. And one day we'll just shed this body and it'll be done. This body is going to be resurrected. God is concerned with the body. We will always be embodied. And so the idea is he's saving the total person. And so you are to give your mind and consciousness to God. And your body is supposed to come along for the, for the ride. Now that's the problem, remember, of lordship. Paul says, with my mind I serve the law of God. But my body serves the law of sin and death. That's that struggle. So we have to deny the flesh and present our body as a living sacrifice, not conform to the world, as Peter, as Paul uh, tells us. So the inner man and the body is to be given to God. The third thing he says is you shall love the, God, the Lord your God with all of your strength or all of your energy. Interesting word here. This word means that we are to love God wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly, not in reserve. It's not a partial commitment to God. I'm giving him all of the inner me, I'm giving him all of the outer me, and I'm giving it in full and in full commitment in that framework. So this first and greatest commandment is the starting place of all obedience. We give ourselves to God completely. Uh, then we are His to command, and under Lordship, we live our lives in trust and obedience to Him. Now, that's difficult, because in Christianity, we've kind of made this a one-time make a profession of faith, and then now I'm on layaway, I'm saved. Uh, But that's not the biblical notion. Uh, The biblical notion is a lot like marriage, uh, because we are the bride of Christ. Dr. Lewis is always saying, uh, marriage is... One ceremonial yes, and every day another yes. It's a daily commitment to one another. And there's a struggle with that. But it's the idea of getting up each day and saying, Lord, I belong to you. You are Lord over me, and I will obey you. I'm going to struggle with it, I'm going to miss the mark, but my intent and, my, and the direction of my life is to obey you. In that context. Now, if you give God everything, you have nothing left to give. And so the second commandment assumes the first commandment in loving your neighbor. Once you belong completely to God, he can tell you what to do. And what does he tell you to do? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's found in Deuteronomy, I mean in Leviticus chapter 19. quoted often throughout the scriptures, fascinatingly placed in the book of Leviticus, a book which most people don't want to read, uh, chapter 19, beginning at verse 9. It's tied into a context, and I want you to see the context. 
He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your fields, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, you're going to leave part of your fields open. You're not going to gather up everything you have. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. Because now you've given yourself to God, you bear his name. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere the Lord your God. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, no defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall reprove your neighbor, but you will not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See the context? That commandment is virtually how we deal with all other people. The first commandment is how we deal with God. We give him everything because he is Lord and creator. And we do that through Jesus Christ. We give ourselves then to our neighbor in their need based on what we have. And we don't pervert that justice towards the poor or for the, the, the great. That notion of being correct with people, being righteous with people, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting. What's the first commandment? I give everything to God. So do I give everything to my neighbor? No. The commandment to love your neighbor is to treat them the way you want to be treated. That's why the golden rule is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a sharing kind of giving. It's not a giving up sacrificially for your neighbor. It's simply sharing with their neighbor because we are our brother's keeper in that sense. And so the idea is to see ourselves as part of humanity, all created in the image of God, and therefore act justly towards all people, whether they are a stranger, whether they are a foreigner, whether they're somebody who you don't get along with, to simply do right by them. I don't have to feel great about them. I have to do right by them. And that's, in essence, what this is about. about. Now, Jesus gives us quite a great insight into this in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 10. And you're familiar with this passage. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to uh, read it all. I just want you to know where where it is. 10 verses uh, 25 and uh, following. Um, again, a lawyer stands up and says to him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and, all your, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. 
wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, let's get this clear. Okay, because there's some people I just don't want to help out. And so if I can tell which ones are my neighbor and which ones aren't my neighbor, then I'll get it. So Jesus tells a story. And you know the story. A man is beaten by robbers and thrown in a ditch. And there are some religious folks that are coming by and they see him and they pass the other way. Now, we, we tend to treat them as hypocrites. They are simply misunderstanding the issue of holiness and the, and the majority of this second commandment. You cannot use the first commandment to violate the second. You following me? What they would say is, oh, this man is bleeding. He's an he's a unwashed person. He's not, uh, I'm on my way to the temple. I'm purified and all that. If I touch him, if I help him, if I do all of this stuff, I'm going to be uh, unclean. So they avoid that. Because I'm going to be spiritual. Okay? Jesus condemned those who use the connection to God to hurt others. Okay? Because that takes the Lord's name in vain. So the idea here is they go past him, but the Samaritan, now you've got to understand, a Samaritan to the Jews was like a, uh, a black person in the South before the Civil War. No intermarriage, no interaction, because they're sub-people to us. So Jesus uses the Samaritan. And the Samaritan comes and he binds up the guy's wounds and he takes care of him and he brings him to an inn and he says to the innkeeper, you take care of him, heal him, feed him, clothe him, take care of him. When I come back, I'll pay the bill. Okay? Fascinating. Uh, for years, pilgrims to Israel wanted to see the Good Samaritan Inn and there is no Good Samaritan Inn because it's a parable, but they built one so you can now see one right there because... Because, you know, people got to have one. Got the Good Samaritan in. Now, we use the word Good Samaritan as a dual thing. Good and Samaritan. Oh, you're being a Good Samaritan. They saw it as an oxymoron. Good Samaritan is not possible. Okay? Now, Jesus answers the question. Who was neighbor to this man? He didn't say, who was this man's neighbor? To love your neighbor as yourself is to treat them the way you would want to be treated. If you were beaten up and left in a ditch, you wouldn't care who came and helped you. And whoever helped you would be a good neighbor to you. Right? So the idea of this second commandment is that we should, as our profession of faith, act out in a way that we are doing good to all people. And the scripture is very clear about that. Uh, this is to all people, uh, and we're told by James that this is related to our judgment. In James chapter 2. James chapter 2, he says... <clears throat> Brethren, do not hold this faith of our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. If someone comes into your synagogue, the Greek word there is synagogue, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, 
And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my footstool. You have made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. Listen, my beloved brethren, God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you, the elites who oppress you? Boy, it's amazing how many Christians want to be part of the elite and they want to get the elite to come to Christ so that they can be great witnesses. It's kind of a nonsense idea. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. For the one who said, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not... If you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you're still a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, because judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I will have mercy. God is much more interested in us being merciful to one another than to be critical of one another. There's a tendency for us to use the commandments for other people. We were having this conversation at the uh, Southern Baptist Messianic Fellowship. There's, a, there's always people that get to the commandments and use them to beat everybody else up with. Hey, don't you know the Bible says this? Don't you know the Bible says this? Now, here's my view on that. If you're reading the commandments for self-improvement, The Lord bless you and keep you and prosper you in that. If you are reading the commandments to criticize and condemn and separate from other people, that'll perish with you. Because that's not the way we're to use the law of liberty. I use the mirror to see what I need to improve. I don't take the mirror and say, see something wrong with me, and then turn the mirror towards you and say, see what's wrong? Because it's going to be different, right? We're supposed to use this for ourselves. So the second commandment is a principle of living with our fellow man, which includes the stranger and even our personal enemies. Feeding one who is hungry, even if they've wronged you, is loving your neighbor. Now we get to the final commandment, which is in John 15. Jesus is going to give us the basis of it. Remember, the first commandment is give everything to God as a living sacrifice. The second one is share with your neighbor. John the Baptist said, if you have two coats, give one to another, right? He's not asking you to sacrifice. He's asking you to take what you have and use it for the benefit of another, which is reasonable in that we are brothers and sisters, common humans in the world. So the third, this last one he says... In verse 12 of John 15. This is my commandment. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Now notice the difference. Love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? In a total sacrificial sense. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, because the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain and that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This, thus I commanded you that you love one another. So this loving one another is at a level that is beyond the neighbor. So we are to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Now, the danger here is this. Somebody came in with a, a gun and said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot one of you. I would imagine there are some in here who would say, then shoot me to protect the others. We have a tendency to rise to the occasion when it's a massive issue. If somebody goes through a major problem in a church, boy, the church rushes to help them. That's not all that this commandment is about. It's about the little everyday things. And we see that in 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. John is, is, throughout this entire text, is talking about this commandment of loving our brother. Uh, loving one another in that sense. And in verse 11 he says this. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and killed his brother. Why did he kill his brother? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. But we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that the murderer has no eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, so far, we're that big thing. I'll lay down my life for you, right? I always say this is the problem with husbands uh, when we love our wives. When, when a man loves a woman, we, we, we go into self-sacrifice mode. I'll swim the widest ocean. I'll climb the highest mountain. I'll kill people to prove my love. Take out the trash? Too little. Right? That, I mean, that's that, that's that male kind of thing. We go to the big one and then we leave the little undone. The Lord says if we're faithful in the little, we'll be faithful in the big. Right? So here's, here's what John says after he says that. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children... Let us not love with word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is the be warmed and filled. Oh, I'll pray for you. Be blessed. But not doing, not actually helping with the need. We will know by this that we are of the truth and assure our heart before him. You want proof that God is dwelling in you and that you belong to him? It is unnatural to give. It's natural to hoard and to take care of ourselves 
and to do that. It is unnatural. It becomes a dynamic of God's spirit in us that begins to make us to want to help others and to do for others and to care for others in a way that is self-sacrificial. For the neighbor, we are just to share. But to our brothers and sisters, we go beyond. We are to love them as Christ loved the church. So all of the commandments, the 614 and the, uh, in the Older Testament and the 115 in the New Testament, one and other commandments, all of these commandments are connected to those three commandments. That's why we have to learn these and memorize them first. If you're teaching little, little kids, okay, then what are the three commandments? Love God, love the neighbor, and love one another. Almost every little kid can learn that. When they're a little older, how do we love God? With all of us, the inner, inside and the outside. How do we, and with all of our strength, right? How do we love our neighbor? We love them the way we love ourselves. If I'm thirsty, I want someone to give me a drink, I give them a drink, right? It's simple, practical stuff to teach children. How do we love one another? We love one another in a way that denies ourselves for the benefit of the other. We prefer one another over ourselves. That can be taught to children. Then later, they, by the time they're ready for catechism, they can learn it in all its theological boldness. But the idea is we want that internalized. That's the gyroscope needed in the believer to follow lordship. How do I follow lordship? I will love God. That will, be, that will result in holiness. I will love my neighbor. That will result in righteousness. And I will love one another. That will result in unity. Those are the goals that God has as his will for his children. That we become holy, for he is holy. That we are righteous, because he is righteous. And we become one, because the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. That's the will of God. That's how we need to teach it. The rest are details. The footsteps, they are not the substance. The substance is the direction that I've just shared with you. So, let's go to the Lord in prayer.